The Wild Iris by Louise Glick At the end of my suffering, there was a door. Hear me out. That which you call death, I remember. Overhead, noises. Branches of the pine shifting. Then nothing. The weak sun flickered over the dry surface. It is terrible to survive as consciousness buried in the dark earth. Then it was over. That which you fear, being a soul and unable to speak, ending abruptly, the stiff earth bending a little. And what I took to be birds darting in low shrubs. You who do not remember passage from the other world, I tell you I could speak again. Whatever returns from oblivion returns to find a voice. From the center of my life came a great fountain, deep blue, shadows on azure seawater. I'm Bianca Stone, and I feel like it's been a while since I've posted a podcast, but it's been a busy fall, whatever that means. But I'm back, and I'm thinking of lots of things. And it's amazing how much we withhold from speaking, waiting for some point in time that keeps getting farther and farther away. That point in time when we think we can speak more freely. And of course, the lying fallow period is important too. You can probably hear it a little bit in my voice. I feel something in the air. Of course, it's a new moon and it's a changing season. And it's somewhere between going back into the ground and re-emerging as something else. It's not spring. We know that. It's fall season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, the leaves falling off the trees, fallen soldiers in the Iliad, death of course, the death of something, the death of poets, the death of ideas of self, the slow going to sleep the preparation for it, the food, the smells, the colors, the flawed nature of man is our inability to accept our flaws and look at them. The potentiality of the flaw itself, the flaws that get uncovered by speaking, yes, it makes you not want to speak at all. This war, of course, that's going on right now feels devastating and heated and painful and ancient and utterly current. It speaks to all of the derision in our world that needs addressing. But how? How? It's no small task and it feels massive, global. And as I said, ancient. How do you address something so old and new at the same time? One feels so helpless. I can't help but think about Jung's book, The Undiscovered Self, which I just read. 
And it was something that he wrote, two essays, two long essays about, well, about the undiscovered self in response to the shattering experiences of World War II and the dawn of mass society. So this book he wrote is a kind of plea for his generation and those to follow his generation to continue the work, the individual work of self-discovery and not to abandon the needed psychological reflection, the importance of self-reflection, rather than project it onto the other. And that this as above, so below idea that we can reflect and create change by by the internal gaze, the honest look, which takes another person to talk to you, which takes an intimacy. And since this is a poetry podcast, I think it's important to acknowledge poetry's part here. I want to thank you, James Barnes, for tagging me in this post from the Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy Study Center in New York City, who posted this quote, Lionel Trilling said Freud created a psychology which, quote, makes poetry indigenous to the very constitution of the mind. This, of course, brings me to the point here, which is that uh, poetry is a way to interact with the self and the the undiscovered self, the unconscious self, not the, the, you know, the maxim, know thyself, though this keeps coming up in my life. Uh, Of course it does, of course it does. Know thyself, well, knowing thyself is no easy thing, and people use this phrase flippantly. They think knowing yourself is knowing yourself as you speak socially, as um, as you define yourself consciously. Of course, this undiscovered self is deeply involved with the dark unconscious. And as is the point here, is the point here, are we willing to look at the dark side of our own unconscious rather than point outward at others? Well, it's no small thing. It's the hardest thing we will ever do. And it is the most worthy pursuit we can. Jung writes, ultimately, everything depends on the quality of the individual. But our fatally short-sighted age thinks only in terms of large numbers and mass organizations, though one would think that the world had seen more than enough of what a well-disciplined mob can do in the hand of a single madman. It's entirely possible that this original state of consciousness found in poetry can be the first step for some of us to do that difficult work of plumbing the depths of self and being really honest about what's going on in there so that we can be better people on this earth and that we can be compassionate and look at one another. And may this conversation with Dorothea Lasky that I had on the podcast be part of that. Dorothea Lasky is the author of seven books of poetry and prose, including most recently The Shining, which just came out from Wave Books. The Shining is as labyrinthine as its namesake. It is an ekphrastic horror lyric that shapes an entirely unique feminist psychological landscape. Here, Dorothea Lasky guides us through the familiar rooms of the Overlook Hotel, 
both realized and imagined, inhabiting characters and spaces that have been somewhat flattened in Stephen King's novel or in Stanley Kubrick's film adaptation. Ultimately, Lasky's poems point us to the ways in which language is always haunted by past selves, poetic ancestors, and paradoxical histories. I'll also be doing some sponsorship now on the podcast. And this episode is brought to you by McTaggart Jewelry. Paige Taggart is an incredible poet in her own right and has been making jewelry for quite some time. So if you need to feel a little more present in your body, just put on some McTaggart jewelry and feel a little more protected in the armor of tactile stones and metal. And if you're in need of a pick-me-up, just shop this Brooklyn-based poet's McTaggart jewelry and use the code PSYCHE20 for 20% off your next purchase. You won't regret it. Each package arrives like a magical talisman you didn't know you needed, and then it becomes a staple in your life and it haunts you. I personally have been wearing Paige Taggart's jewelry for over 15 years, and I really love buying it from my friends and family, and I know you will too. And then when you go to a poetry reading and you see another poet wearing certain necklaces or earrings, you'll say, hey, that's a McTaggart jewelry piece. And be like, yeah, I know. I got one too. And then you'll clink necklaces and carry on, sit in the front row together, be best friends. It's pretty great. So all you have to do is go to mactaggartjewelry.com, M-A-C-T-A-G-G-A-R-T, jewelry.com and you can use the code psyche20 for 20% off I've always been distrustful of a fixed eye it's a conversation you find those things they find you you should never fight them if they come to you that could be you know a poet from a thousand years ago that could be a poet today you should let those things in but you shouldn't be forced by someone else the language you just have within you, you know, is super important to what you're creating. It's the language that's just there, and we don't know exactly really where it comes from. I mean, we can tie it to, yeah, again, like our experiences, what we've read, but some of it, we're not, it's coming from something we can't fully understand. Dorothea Lasky, welcome to the Odin Psyche podcast. Hi, Bianca. Thank you for having me on this beautiful podcast. I am so excited to talk about The Shining, which just came out um, from Wave Books just in time for Halloween. The first thing that struck me was, well, I've been thinking so much lately about the idea of autobiography, self, and how uniquely and strangely the psyche is i think allowed to dream uh with the self and auto in the autobiographical within poetry but i don't you know that the the question is very um unfinished and inchoate so your book offers a really unique perspective on the investigation of self and autobiography as it pertains to poetry and I thought we could start first with your opening poem in The Shining called Self-Portrait in a Hotel. Self-Portrait in the Hotel. I am here by myself and I have finished everything. There are no pretensions, no way around the door. 
I have eaten all the cans of beans and lemons and am face drunk on the floor. There are no cats here, only children crawling around above me. Yes, they look at me. They absolutely do not know me. They want to look at me and tell me they know. They are fed and ready for the ceremony. I haven't prepared anything. I am so wholly unprepared for this. I was told I'd have a lifetime. Now the whole thing is coming at me. I can't even see myself in the mirror or in the space between the mirror and the wall. He brings me to the gray fixtures and mentions that we are dead. Who didn't know that when I checked into this godforsaken hellhole? They locked me in the tiny yellow room with no belongings but my lipstick and said that I'd be okay as long as I didn't make a movement. In and out he entered me, letting me know what I could or could not say. I wasn't saying anything. I never wanted to say a thing. I only wanted to see myself as vast and unknowable in some horrific ocean. Instead, they drove me for hours, and up on the lands I wandered. Red boots and a dark brown coat. I collected aqua pencils, four of them. They said it's your job now to tell this story, but I was no storyteller. I was an action figure that had no set box. I was tied up inside the cardboard. A little person took me down and drooled all over me. I was not a seer at all, and they knew it. I was only her and will be forever. And when you see her empty eyes, that's me, except my eyes are gleaming. And when there are tears, I will cry them, only for the days that have left me. They drove me here and locked me in a tiny yellow room. They said to be quiet, but I am not able to be quiet any longer. Hmm. Thank you so much, Dottie Lasky, reading Self-Portrait in the Hotel. So I was thinking of the idea of self-portrait in general, how it already removes the self from the mind into an object, onto a piece of paper, a canvas, a stone, photograph, whatever the object is. Um, it's a supposed self outside of the self. Already, it's distinctly not I, but a strange mirroring. Hopefully, I feel like a discovery <laughs> of self, something you didn't know before, maybe. Uh, but it's perfect for the opening of this book. And I know it's it's more complex in terms of who the I is, and we'll get more into that too. But I feel like it was perfect for the opening of this book because it's almost as if the book as a whole is like, well, it's like frastic, essentially, you know, it's, it's art responding to art. Um, but it's interesting to think of like, what makes it, what makes it frastic, fresh and new, and not just a repeating of the object that it's talking about. And it feels like in some element of a true ekphrastic is a kind of self-portrait or finding the self or carving the self out within that object. I The first part of my question is, tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind your book, The Shining, 
And what drew you in particular to the Stanley Kubrick film, which of course is of the Stephen King novel, um, and and how this and and how this particular uh, art piece um, drew you? And that's the, that's the first part of my question. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, yeah, I love I love what you said about just self portrait and how it ties like to ekphrastic work um and because i think that's really true um you can hear can you hear me okay yeah because should i close the window yeah um so i really love what you were saying you know about self-portrait and ekphrastic work because i think they are so you know intertwined and i love that idea that when somebody does something ekphrastic they are kind of almost looking for the self in that piece of artwork and like, yeah, I think that we talk about that, like when you do something in an ekphrastic way, don't just kind of, you know, regurgitate or redo what's already been there, you know, kind of move past it or, you know, like as teachers, we would say, you know, make its own thing, you know, that is of equal value as what it's interpreting or whatever. And like the self is so part of that. Um, and I just think about, you know, if you've ever played that game or just even with yourself, like looking at a painting and saying, or a photograph or, you know, any piece of art, like, which thing are you in that thing? Um, yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, I, I just, I don't know why I was thinking of like that Manet painting, like um, Luncheon on the Grass. Uh -huh. And I think that there is poems about that. And I'm so sorry that I'm forgetting. I, th I feel like I've read ekphrastic poems about it. But just like if I were to look at that painting, like, you know, which person do you feel most like and like the poet or the artist or whatever would could feel like any of those people or feel like the tree. You could you could imagine like feeling like all of all of them. But there's probably like maybe one set of eyes like you gravitate towards that yeah. you feel like you understand their emotion. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, in terms of like this book, there is something of that, you know, like tied to that idea of like the self and um, thinking of, you know, this movie that's meant so much to me and where like I find myself in it because in my imagination, you know, I'm able to like access that space and go there and be there like almost like I'm almost physically there you know it's like a kind of virtual reality thing in the imagination and it's and like I think before writing the book I never exactly thought about you know who I would be in in there or who yeah I would most be emotionally tied to and I think over the years I felt like uh, I realized that the person I felt most connected to was Wendy mm. um so like I just uh, or maybe she just has that present well, as a mother too. I I couldn't help but think of that. Like you can't help but as a mother, you can't help but identifying with her strengths as a mother that she has to like keep it together. And I mean, not she doesn't have to keep it together actually, but she she has like the the it's just her and and the son that are there essentially. Like he just shuts them out. Um, yeah. Yeah. And she's kind of not allowed. I mean, I guess she could have her own preoccupations and I guess she's reading or watching movies or whatever she's doing, but she's like not really given, especially in the movie, like a purpose, like an artistic purpose or mm. she doesn't have really 
my, you know, I think she has to do some of the duties that he has to, you know, check the things and prepare the food. I mean, when they get there, that's what she's like, that's what she's tasked with. Here's the kitchen and you'll see where you can get all the food. But she's, she doesn't have this like really important, like intellectual artistic, like project, like the father does. Yeah. And it's weird because you see her in the, the first time you see her, she's reading Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, 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 and you sit and you see all the. I love their spaces, like their apartment before yeah. they get there, where her bookshelf is. So you're looking at my like messed up bookshelf, but yeah. her books just look like so haphazardly put on there, and they feel like you can feel that like there there might be like a really um like fast, quick witted mind behind like you know they're not like they've they it's like a lived in set of books. And yeah. even in their little apartment in the hotel, like there's, there are books there and so yeah. there's some idea. And he calls, he tells the man he's interviewing with that she's like a horror fanatic. That's you know, right. So, yeah. Yeah. So like, she does have like an intellectual life, but like, that's not what she's like, that's not what her role is. And her role is really like to be the domestic person and make the food and watch, you know, Danny. So he doesn't bother the dad. And like, it's just kind of just, just interesting to think about how that becomes so much of her like purpose there. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, I think as a mother, like, especially during the time I was like thinking about it again, you know, during the pandemic and being there with the children, like I, I became, I really understood so many of like the things she does, like, especially when she's very upset and wants to take you know, um, Danny to the doctor, like that is like such a real feeling mm -hmm. where, you know, like as, as we know, like as a mother, when there's something that is like unexplainable, you really, really want somebody to tell you it's going to be okay. You know, kids just get high fevers or you mm -hmm. know, you just want that like validation. And it seems like that's what she's like searching for. And I felt like I really could relate to that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and also like the vulnerability of like her her being a mother because on some level I feel like she feels vulnerable because she has this vulnerable boy that she's like charged with taking care of. So she can't do really completely reckless or outlandish things in response to like her husband's right. irrational behavior. She has to still protect and I feel like that's like very trapped in her fear that she feels. Absolutely. And it made me think too, in that, in that one scene where he, he's, he falls asleep on his desk and he's like moaning and crying out in his sleep. And then she comes running in and is holding him. And he's like, I dreamed I killed you all and cut you into tiny pieces. And, and she's like, it's going to be okay. You know, and you can sort of see, and then, and then Danny, you can see him coming in and he's, and she's like, go to your room, but then realizes there's something wrong with him too. And then that moment of you see her running from him to the little boy. And like, in that moment, you see her like decision, almost like decision making between the two. Um, and I don't know, something so like intense about that moment, but of course, like, I guess, you know, chooses the son because he, you know, he's the, the, you know, sees for a moment, sees his violence um, and the, and the child's need is greater than his. Um, 
Yeah, it's really interesting because I think Danny in the movie is supposed to be like about six or whatever. And we, yeah. you know, and um, the way she picks him up is like you would pick up a baby. Like she's holding, the way she's holding him in that scene, I'm like mm. so fascinated with because he is, you know, older. And he's sucking his thumb too, right? When he's, yeah. yeah. He, and he's like kind of, yeah, he can't, he's traumatized. So yeah. he doesn't say anything. He's looking off in some other way. And so she's hold like her first instinct is to hold him like a baby. And like, like he is this vulnerable, you know, yeah. thing she's entrusted to care for. And um, yeah, it's just like, it's very, it just, I feel like it's hard not to empathize with her in that moment for me. So you said that over the years, you know, this sort of identifying with her character developed, but your relationship, I assume, with the film, The Shining, has was started very early or has been has been a film that you loved for a long time or was it a later in life discovery? Yeah, it was probably it seemed at one point like a later in life, but now that I've lived yeah. <laughs> so long, I realize it was like relatively yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was like I was like maybe twenty one when I first okay, saw it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was I just um randomly saw it like at a midnight showing, you know, some friends were like, Let's go see this and I was like, Sure, whatever. Um, but then I was like what the fuck that yeah. just happened to me? <laughs> and I just became really, I get really, really obsessed with things I like. And so it just has always been something to come back to and just like, just obsessed with the beauty of it. You know, it mm. just, it's just so, so beautiful as, you know, horrific as it is. And so it's just always something like almost like, it gives me, I know, you know, happiness to like look up, you know, strange blogs about it and, mm -hmm. read, you know, <laughs> like fan ideas about it. Like, so I always kind of just gravitate towards like that set of imagery, I think, in my poems, even if it's not sometimes obvious, like the characters just come back and come back and say hello or whatever. And so it's just become like a really old friend to me there's so much left unsaid in that film that it's like perfect to keep coming back to and visually incredibly striking, like the way that the shots are set up and the colors are so vivid. It sort of brings me to the second part of my question, which is a little more general. Well, moving back, I guess, to the, the poems themselves, what do you feel is unique in poetry as a form for investigation of self. Yeah, yeah. I think I think what I love about poetry, um, you know, and I think which is, you know, could be seen um, maybe by some as a limitation, but I never have seen it that way, is that for me, I just think it's impossible in poetry to ever really forget about the I. I'm like a big fan of the eye in a poem, obviously, yeah. but, um, but like, you know, people may choose to not be a fan. They may choose to not have the eye, but I still think the eye is there no matter what you choose formally or stylistically. And I just have kind of maybe, um, just these ideas of the eye and this very traditional, you know, 
way of thinking of persona and it's like definition as like a mask or like something that is performative. And so I think that like the performative eye, you know, allows for just so, so many ways to have experiences and imagery and sound be, um, you know, connected within like the form of the poem. And I feel that, um, of course, like every kind of art form has its own like unique thing that makes it special in that way. And I guess that you could say the eye is there in other writing, you know, I'm sure in nonfiction or fiction or obviously in hybrid, you know, forms or like, but in painting or whatever. But I just think there is something particular about the persona in a poem that just makes it so wonderful to, I think, yeah, do ekphrastic work or go into other art forms and see within those forms, you know, as a poem, because there is the possibility of like performance in this kind of holy way that, you know, other art forms might be doing as well. Like if we were to write, like I have tried to write, you know, essay or whatever, of course we're writing about it. We're deal. we're right in there. We're thinking about it. We're relating it to other ideas or we could write our own shining novel. You know, of course, you know, we could write our comedy skit like Jordan Peele does a lot, but it's like, there's just something where there's the capacity to completely, you know, like go, go in another art form, which feels really special. I love that the way you know, I, I thought immediately of there, the, I love the friends, right. Has this line in his poem. It's like, I speak in the mask of the first person. And I, and it's exactly that, but like, I, we don't, we, you know, everyone's like, Oh, I, you know, I don't want to, I didn't want to have any eye in this poem. Like as if, as if, as if the eye is some like shameful, like person sitting before you, like is this if it's as if it's this person sitting before you but but that that idea of the performance of i as not something false or untrue or uh manipulative even or or trying to uh i would say pretend to be somebody else right but maybe as a, like, I think you're totally right. You're you're totally. This is totally great that that there's a a freedom in understanding the performance of the self and the eye, and because what it does is it acknowledges that there are multiple eyes, and that you can inhabit different ones. And I kept thinking too, reading your book and then watching the film, I kept for some reason I was obsessed with the actors themselves and their acting abilities. I kept thinking too about everyone always maybe thinks of Jack Nicholson first and his like Academy award winning performance. Um, but you know, Shelley Duvall is, I feel like she is the film, you know, and her weird noodly body and her face and her eyes, you know, she's just amazing. And in the little boy too, he's incredible. But I was thinking about how there's something when act good acting is so it's as rare as good poetry, but it's but there's also a lot of it. And when somebody nails it, it feels so authentic. It feels like an it feels like they are inhabiting an eye within themselves that 
that they had to find that wasn't them, that was othered, but also them. I don't know. But but you're totally tapping into that, right? So like so in your book, inhabiting these characters from the film seems like that. It's like inhabiting the eye through the other. Uh, I know Dickinson has that thing where she says, like, you know, it's not I it's not the self, but representative of the verse, you know, like, like I, yeah, like I I'm not, that. yeah, like I'm, I'm I, but, you know, I'm not really I, but I think the big thing is like, I don't really believe in I at all. I mean, I mean, I know I believe in I, I know we're, you know, daddy and beyond. like, I know that we are eyes, mm. but I don't, I've always been distrustful of a fixed eye mm. like I just remember even learning about being a self when I was really little and I was like okay so I'm I'm this like I'm this person okay this is my name I know that sounds yeah. so weird well it is something you have to learn is yeah. I mean it's it's not inherent you're not like I am I and you are you yeah yeah and and there's so many wonderful ways where people are not really two eyes you know right. what i mean like they and and like it's really hard to say if we're ever just like one you know i the 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 thing that's completely set it's like it also just feels impossible that an eye would ever be completely set and the same it could never be like the same i mean there's you know the same thing just through a whole life or a whole, even right now, you know, talking, let alone in a poem or like across poems, you know, that. And so I think that's also like, for me, something about like the kind of charge that one is tasked with, like to be a poet is like as much as possible to kind of not be too trapped by the idea that the eye has to be one thing or that it has to be fixed or that as like artists or poets or whatever that we're total that we should totally take credit for whatever the eye does right because it's it's representative of the verse so really like the verse is like the one that's like kind of behind the scenes doing some of the work so it's not you know it's not totally this eye that we create and then it's speaking or something but yeah. it kind of leads me into my second question it reminds me of the line in the poem you just read where the speaker says, I, I wanted to be vast and unknowable. Um, I wasn't saying anything. I never wanted to say a thing. I only, I only wanted to see myself as vast and unknowable. Given the nature of the massive hotel in the film and in the book that everything takes place in, the obsession with rooms in your book, The Shining, is understandable. I think so much about the phenomenology of houses and rooms. And of course, I think of the stanza itself as a room within the poem and maybe the poem within the house of the book. And I thought of the, the big, the biblical line, there are many rooms in my father's house and how that mirrors, I think the like the psychological phenomenon we were just talking about, which is within the self, there are many rooms. Um, there are many selves as vast and unknowable as God. Well, maybe, I think. So in this first poem, we see the the sort of confinement of one room and it's the limits to that, to vastness of self. Um, and I think of, 
um, in your poem, Lovely World, you say poets have moons and money to get themselves through the longest night imaginable, but I've had these rooms to beckon me with their own brand of patience. There's this fine line for you in the book between containment, such as the poem, as an opportunity to look at something more closely, and then on the other hand, confinement, which is prison-like and hellish. And it feels like a lot throughout, there's this theme of like being put in that room against your will. So this like loss of autonomy and the confinement with the room. Were you conscious of this exploration of rooms in the book? And, and maybe talk about that. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for all of these brilliant questions that are so thoughtful thinking about it. Um, but yeah, I, w I think that I've, uh, I've always been really interested in hotels as this like particular kind of institutional space, even though, of course, so many of them are, pri you know, privately owned, I guess. I don't know the whole, I don't know how they're structured, actually. But, you know, a lot of them seem to be private corporations, but they're still like, there's still like a kind of institutionalness to them, even if there is some care taken to make them seem, you know, they have their particular aesthetics and moods or whatever. But I just, uh, I, I, they do feel like places where you are kind of put in a particular anonymous space, mm -hmm. you know, like when you go to your hotel, you know, they put you in BF or whatever the thing is. And you didn't really, I mean, I guess if you stay there all the time, you could ask for that, but like it is, it does, it is seemingly random. And then that is like your, it's like, it feels like kind of like you are this object that they're placing in this like kind of anonymous space. Yeah. And then it becomes like, your home for the duration, you know, you're, you're sleeping there, you're going to the bathroom, you're eating, you know, you're doing all these like home like things there. And you and like at the same time of anything like where you might be put like a hospital room, or you might be put into a room, and it becomes this very intimate private space within this large, larger structure. It's like, you have this experience of it that's very interior a lot of times, yeah. you know, you if you're traveling with another person, it's still then just you and them, you know, it's, it's really like something a lot of times it is just this private thing with the self to be in a hotel room, yeah. you know, and it's also just fascinating to me that you can go, you know, to a hotel and because it is so big, you never do visit all the rooms, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, like you, you just, you go into your room, they, they don't take you on a tour of every single room. So just the mystery there is like, is obviously the perfect yeah. setting. For all something. those other people in the other rooms sort of hear the muffled conversations on the other side of the wall. And like, there's something sexual feeling too, that's always going on or like shady and, or, yeah. or exciting, like who's staying in this hotel, you know? Yeah. Or if it's or a fancy that, hotel, you feel like you're in a fancy mansion or something. And yeah, yeah. But, but yet it's like it's it is so scary because it's like you just will never know what those rooms look like. Like, or they, I think in it's really hit home in the horror idea is like what happened in this fucking room? Like what happened in room two thirty seven? Like what went down there? And like the haunting of the you know I feel like every hotel has like a haunted room. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and it is, even if just mundane stuff happened, it is kind of like you just, you feel the residue. Sometimes there is actual yeah. of like the other, <laughs> of like the other, usually there is like the other person, you know, or people, many, many, many people. And it just like, there's, um, yeah, there's just something about that. That's so fascinating. And when I was writing the first draft of the book, I had a lot more rooms, like more rooms that were, um, than were in the, you know, any shiningness. Like I imagined other hallways and other kind of spaces and, um, and just kind of like was really trying to tap into all the possibilities of that. Um, but then, um, didn't like include, you know, all like the different, ho- they there got different- cut. Yeah. Yeah. They got rooms cut. Got yeah. cut. Rooms, yeah. rooms well, that's interesting, cut. but, but you felt, you felt compelled to create other rooms. Yeah. That you didn't, yeah. that weren't yeah. there. Yeah. Like almost, yeah. Cause I was just, I wanted to know, it's almost like, you know, when you're staying in a hotel and the friend has their room, you like want to see their room. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, they put the bed like this. It's just, it's like you want you. There's like a kind of beautiful voyeurism in like in wanting to know that. Well, that reminds me too of what happens in the in the narrative of of The Shining is that when you you're seeing them in this hotel off season and they're you know the little boys like riding his, his three, you know, big wheel around the hallways and he's playing in the middle of the room. And, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson's character's office is like in the middle of this giant, like hall, you know, not an office room. And it's like, everything is like different than it normally is. Not to mention that it's like creepy as hell being in a hotel that's empty. Like I think of Barton Fink's, you know, I'll show you the life of the mind, you know, like running through these like long, you know, the, the way that hallways look, there's something so disorienting and, and strange about them, like in the carpets, which you talk about so well in the poems too. And I totally saw those phalluses, by the way, the purple penises on the rug where it was like, I was like, oh, there they are. <laughs> it was amazing. I love them. Yeah. I'm really into the, I, I love, yeah, I love all the patterns and the rug. Yeah. And just like the rug, because yes, because like, I think rugs are so special too. And thinking about the rugs that were chosen for the film and they're just like so beautiful and I want to, you know, have socks and scarves and their patterns and stuff. But also it's just kind of like, yeah, like rugs as a thing that you didn't choose Mm -hmm. and now you're in the like your body is like on the rug and like you have some relationship to that and rugs are like so amazing because they do collect you know just by their nature like that's right like they're not you can't you can't sweep them away like easily you know you do all the things that I don't know how to do but like you to clean them but like they're not like easily yeah they, they contain life the, like the skin and filaments and semen yeah. and dust of all the <laughs> fuckers that have been passed <laughs> through. Glitter. Yeah. <laughs> <Yellow> glitter. <laughs> Daddy's been here. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if you could read the poem Strange Humor. Yes, yeah. I also love what you said about how, um, you know, like, like, just this idea of performer and actors and how, you know, like the Jack Nicholson was praised by being this great actor and like, it's taken maybe longer to realize what an 
absolutely like genius performance Shelley Duvall gave and like just how interdependent, you know, his performance would have been on her performance. The more she was giving her performance, the stronger his performance could be. Like they needed each other and so many of the interactions that like made him great and give these wonderful performances. And I haven't seen the Barbie movie, so I'm not voting either way if people like it or don't like it did you see it i haven't seen it either yet okay (laughs) we're like we're like left out of the world (laughs) no i I know it's like on netflix like we could watch it tonight oh is it yeah yeah i haven't seen it but i did like watch some interviews and again i'm not like i have no you know connection i mean i have no opinion of the barbie actress and ryan gosling i know she's margot robbie but i did watch an interview with them which is like why did i but i did but they just like push those on you on social media Oh, totally yeah you can't it's like i feel like i've seen it because i've just seen it like (laughs) the discourse everywhere (laughs) yeah but she was saying how like she picked him to be like her actor she wanted to play ken because she said i felt like he would get the best performance out of me and I don't know what that means to those particular actors. That seems super fascinating if you're like into them to think about because I know they're really good actors. I've been in other stuff. Yeah. I think about that like with poems too. And like, I think it connects to what we're saying, like about ekphrastic work almost like. Yeah. How, yeah. Like if you, you know, what, what, what makes your poems the best? Because it's like acting in response to that thing that you're <sighs> writing within. Like, how do you find your best Shelley Duvall or Ryan Gosling or whatever? Well, I think we've tapped into something that is recurring on this podcast, which is the importance of the conversation and the relational aspect of of the well-being human. But art especially, like, you know, the, the writer has, has seen as this private internal person writing in a vacuum. And honestly that's the problem with a lot of with a lot of people struggling to to write something that they feel good about is like uh how do you find really objects and people out in the world to interact with and to and and even i think what you do so well what you show us so well in your book is like you're not just interacting with it as this separate art piece. You completely dissolve the divide between yourself. And it's not, I couldn't even say it's just the film because it's not just the film. It's the actors, it's the book, it's the potentiality of what is being even spoken about or inferred in the film. It's the symbolism of the film. It's the mythology around the film. Like you're interacting with all of it. And then of course your own history too is interacting with it. So it's such a beautiful, um, it's such a beautiful reminder about that ekphrastic is just a more condensed version of maybe what's constantly at work and has always been at work in poetry, which is the allusion to other things and the conversation across time, which is across time and, and now. And yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, um, yeah, like it's also this important thing to like mention that if there's a conversation that, you know, each poet, each writer, whoever's listening, artists, like, just really wants to be a part of like not to fight it because I think so many times we're told oh you already did that so 
find something else. And then we're blocked because we're like, shit, I don't care about anything else. Yeah. Like I, I like the things that I really like, right. like I want to, I mean, that's bad too. You don't want to be so, you know, you want to be exposed to new things. There might be a really cool thing if you open yourself up. Sure. But like, yeah, I feel like we're told to kind of always not do the thing again. And I feel like, like with this book, I was, you know, like um, Joshua, um, my, you know, the editor, Joshua Wait, Beckman, Joshua Beckman, who's like the best person ever. He said, you know, why don't you just write a book about The Shining? And I thought he meant prose. And I was like, that's going to take like 25 years. I guess it's like a lifetime work. But, um, but he was like, no, like write poems. And like some part of me like kind of was like, is that okay though? Cause yeah. I talk about the shining all the time. Like, is this like really not going to be okay if I do this? But it was like, no, it's like, that's my conversation. Like I do it again. I do it 10 more times. Yeah. You know, till you're maybe done. I yeah. I don't want to be like forced to do 10 more books called the shining, but if I want to, I want to be able to like write three more shining books, you know, like I don't want to be limited. So yeah, just to tell people if they're listening to not shy away from, the conversation you want to be a part of like that actor if you want to act with ryan gosling just like do it don't don't worry about yeah, it yeah because to come back to the point which is like well what draws it out of you what draws mike what what draws the creativity out of me and like certain people and vibes do right and certain stories and but it's funny that our default mode is there's something wrong with what i want to do especially if it feels done already or maybe it's it, or but but that's always the key really like that moment when you're like but that doesn't make any sense to do that I can't say it like that that's not how you say it mm -hmm. then you're like oh shit that's it that's it that's the one that's what I should say um because <laughs> yeah. it's actually it's funny because it's so liberating and I feel like one taps into this the more they do it is like it's easier it's way easier to do what you want to do and what you love to talk about than it is to talk about what you think you're supposed to talk about that that doesn't just doesn't you know it feels like more work right so it's like oh what do I care about I mean really that's all we're doing right is like what do I care about what is you know what is Dorothy Dorothea Lasky makes me love The Shining because her joy and obsessiveness over it shows me something about it that I didn't before take the time or feel something for. So it's in a way you're doing the work of bridging between th this piece and you and me. And I'm like, so it's, it's to see. Yeah. <laughs> it might just be your, that you might be representative of the verse that is this like particular thing. And yeah, if it, as long as you're not hurting anyone, you should just do it. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you're not hurting anyone, right? Yeah. Which is, yeah. I hope I didn't hurt anyone by reading this, but maybe people that don't like the shining, yeah. maybe they don't like it. But anyway. All right. Um, strange humor. A strange humor. The key to surviving in here is to pretend every room is haunted, even when it isn't. All these old buildings, everything still lives here. For years I have woken in the middle of the night knowing that she sits there. Yes, she's looking at me. Yes, she has something to say. She never does, though. All these old buildings stick against the day sky. The key to surviving here is to pretend each moment is haunted. 
All these old buildings are thick domes against the night sky, so I took a picture. I took a picture of them. While we were walking under layers of fruit and flowers, all these old buildings, somehow I know she's still watching. She still has something to say. Strange Humor by Dorothea Lasky from her book, The Shining. I love that line, the key to surviving in here is to pretend every room is haunted, even when it isn't. I couldn't help but think of this line speaking to the unconscious. The, like, the unconscious feels scary and hellish and like, like you don't want to look at it, but it's ubiquitous and infinite as well. And of course, pervades everything. Um, Later in the course in the poem, you say, pretend each moment is haunted, which is such a magnificent move because it's essentially what you're saying throughout, you know, like acknowledge what is happening that is unseen. I was thinking about how that in the beginning of the film, it feels like everybody is acting so fake and you know speaking of masks and it's as if they know something isn't right but they keep saying everything is all right and you're you know that you know one thing one moment i hated and you talked about the psychiatrist too but the the psych psychotherapist the psychiatrist doctor in this scene where they're still in their apartment and danny passes out after having a horrific vision of um, the murders in the hotel um, shown to him by the little boy in his mouth was just like, ugh, every time he says that, it just like kills me. I don't know why. Um, so even then the, the, you know, the therapist is like, Oh, he's fine. It's totally normal. It's like totally not normal. Um, and seems like a, a big red flag um but even mr holloran who who he has such a that's such he's such an amazing character too because he's like the one who's like honest and like real with danny but even he won't talk even he has a moment where he's like nothing happened in that room you know don't go in there he doesn't want to talk about it um but this idea of the shining uh, and maybe maybe even tell listeners like what the shining as as the title really means. Um, do do you want to say a little bit about the shining as a as a term? Yeah, yeah. I think that it's you know um, kind of explained as this idea of psychic ability, you know, and like that that if something shines, it has like a kind of presence that is like connected to the sublime or isn't just like trapped in its present mm. as like knowledge of past, present, future. And, and like has, has knowledge that is um, maybe, yeah, just inexplicable, you know, like there's and and communication skills, you know, that are like inexplicable or something. And um yeah, and I, and that and that like yeah, to like shine is like it's also really interesting because like to shine is like kind of to be a beacon, you know, like if we yeah. think of a, a shining light, you know, in the dark ocean, it's kind of like to let someone know either they can, 
you, you know, they can come to you. There's like something there to like hope for, or it's like a distress call, you know, it's like help me, but it's like a way of communication. And so it's really interesting because it is like this communicative force, you know, and as like an idea and, um, in the book and the movie and everything. It's interesting that he tells Danny sometimes, well, he says in that also places shine. Mm -hmm. um, the hotel itself, but it's, it's as if the place has its own consciousness as a building. And of course it's said that the buildings built on like Indian burial grounds, which is, you know, haunts the whole film too. Um, in the beginning of your book, you have this quote by um, Valerie, the objects see me as I see them. I saw this sort of connecting to the objects of the hotel and the things in it, you know, there's all these little Easter eggs of things within the, within the hotel, um, as connecting with those objects. But, but I, you know, thinking about consciousness as leaving the body or like being outside of the, you know, not confined to the form of the mind. Um, I don't know, just anything there about how you see objects looking back at you. Yeah, well, it's it's really, um, yeah, it's just really interesting because we kind of just thinking about this idea of haunting and haunting as related to shining. And I don't feel like they're the same thing, but they're probably, you know, more connected than not. But I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about how like haunting is a kind of hope that somebody cares enough to watch or reach out and try to speak to you that um and that why like it's it's either more fun or more comforting to pretend like a moment is haunted um you know or a place is haunted or a day is haunted is that there's something that feels like you're cared for you're in some type of embrace it may mm -hmm. be a Creepy embrace it might be an exciting embrace. We don't know who the embrace is because it kind of suggests that like, you know, at some point somebody's going to look back, you know, at this moment and care that you existed. Hmm. And it's so, so sad that that could not be, that might not be true. Hmm. You know, like all of life could be complete. It's, it maybe is more likely than not. I have no way to, we don't know that it is just futile. There is no afterlife. It's just, we're, we're concocting these delusions of it just to make ourselves feel better. And there's, it's absolutely pointless and haunting. And that's shining. like, yes, sorry, sorry. it's just so, it's like our biggest dread, like dread. Yes. I don't, I don't like thinking, yeah. but I do go there a yeah. lot. Like, cause it's like what, you know, the idea, like when you're just looking at it, that seems more, that, that seems like a plausible possibility, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, and I definitely have been through long periods where I, you know, there is still some part of me that's like, what are you even talking about with haunting and shy? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't believe in any of that. You, you know, this is all just like a 
a fun game, right? You know, and even with poetry, like, but anyway, so we can get into that. We won't go into that today because we're trying to be hopeful, but, but I think that that's the thing is like haunting, haunting is comforting because it suggests like, you know, even if like this moment between us is haunted, it's like, it's just even just the hope that somebody's going to listen to us talk, that it wasn't just like that. Mm-hmm. And it made make them upset or make them happier it produces some thought in their mind and that's like engenders another thought and that's like exciting and so I think yeah like thinking about objects I think about this a lot you know we're and of course is related to some of our climate issues we're just so quick to throw or just disregard objects as soon as the pen doesn't have ink you know we're like who knows I know and this is coming from someone who's collector slash hoarder, but I'm always like, but it's been with me, you know, like, I love it. Like, how could you do that to that pen? You know, it's like, it's seen everything and you like want to believe it cares for you, but obviously it's not more important than, you know, someone you love or a person, but like, you still like want to protect it as this like object that has seen somehow seen things and again I think it's that like just striving that that light you see in the you know dark ocean is like a is like something that's like there for you whether it's a distress call that you need to go answer or it's like a friend saying you can swim out here because I'll be here Mm. like I think and I I think that's like the the part of the shining that feels really positive in a way that it's like it's better than not and that's why I love that scene when um you know they're talking in the kitchen and you know Mr. Halloran is talking to Danny and kind of trying to scold him and everything like that is like um just that like they're sharing something and it's so beautiful even if it's totally scary because there's this moment where they really understand each other and how they've felt kind of having the psychic knowledge is like they can like they they can you know communicate without speaking right like they're just communicating with their eyes and it's just this beautiful kind of communion or something yeah. that they're having to like even though what they're saying is not good you know <laughs> it's such a strange aspect of film and i feel like it's i don't know stephen king's work that well but what the things that i have seen it does seem like a stephen king move like to have this almost like like mystery within the mystery like this thing within the horror movie which is it and it's but it does seem as it is like distinctly like good there's something really be- and even the the word the shining like you said it's like a beacon it's like a light it doesn't feel like horror you know it feels like insight but but i was struck by it too because it does show because the shining does seem to share in the haunting but that's why it made me think of the unconscious and consciousness because they're the dark side of consciousness. Jung talks so much about the shadow self that needs to be acknowledged within the self in order to like, but that's what horror is, right? That's what horror is, is like us like working out, doing our shadow work. I I feel like I love the language of it. And just like you're saying the politeness, but like it's that wonderful moment where you know they're communicating on some other level, even though we can't hear them like we can with Danny and Mr. Halloran, like, you know, in the audio or whatever, we know they are communicating. There's an exchange of information that's beyond the flat surface 
of the language that they're saying, which is like, of course, very polite and proper for, you know, an interview or whatever. And I've just, I, um, there's just something about that language that I just love so much, like that kind of flat language where there is just so much of the the shadow or, you know, or something like that, like the unconscious that's really saying, you know, so much. And just the fact that that happens so much in everyday life, you know, yeah. you, um, you go and, you know, there, there's like the person you like and you're getting orange juice and you're saying, how are you? But you're really saying, you know, we're cool. I love you. You know, like I got your back, you know, right. like, we're, or you might be saying, I don't like you, you right, know, and they're, right. they're saying like, I hate, you know, or they might be saying like, I don't want to like be here right now. Or you might be saying like, I just want, you know, like, but you're the words that come out are so beautiful because mm -hmm. they're, there's so much under them. And I always think about that in poetry, that that's what I really want to do. It's like, there's language and it's like doing what it is, but I'm really saying other stuff, yeah. you know, in it. Do you feel as a poet like you're doing that too? Like, do you feel? I mean, like I, I hope so. One hopes, you know, it's like, God, please don't let me just be saying what I, but I mean, that's where a lot of people get tripped up is like, well, how do I do that? Right. So they, and, and I, I actually really wanted to talk to you about this as, as a wonderful teacher, which I know you are, that people struggle so much to understand, well, how do I access language that contains hidden meaning? that even I am not, right? So I feel like what we want is like the language that contains meaning that we, we can sense but don't fully understand so that it, it can be surprising and multifarious and, and, and engage the reader in, in ways that even surprise us. But like, I think like, how do you, how do you access that? Because what I feel like what I struggle so much with in explaining in workshop with students is like, the difference between being like vague and cryptic and like having mystery and hidden meaning. And it's, I, I don't, and, and you said something really, I think that really gets at it, which is like plainness or, or that sort of like plain conversation somehow. Do I mean, do you think that, I mean, how do you, you're you're such a master at this because there's something about your poetry that is so direct and conversational and intimate that I feel I always feel like you're talking right to me and yet and and right so it's narrative right I'm always like aware of 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 a kind of narrative and yet at the same time you know there's something so unsaid and so, i i don't know what exactly always is going on but yet i do so i i guess it it kind of comes back to and as we wind down here um it, it kind of goes back to my er, my first inquiry which is about the the biography of the self and it's as if you're so good at talking i i can tell about your own experience indirectly um I don't know, I guess, A, how do you talk to your students about the line and doing nar and narrative and lyrical? Um, and B, I, I don't know if I have a B. Let's just go with A. One. <laughs> I, <don't>, I, <laughs> I, feel, <laughs> I feel like there's some key in like, um, and not in, oh, there's so many keys, as you're saying, you know, there's multiple keys, but like the one key 
like I would talk about, which wouldn't be the only key I'm just saying into the hotel door. I know I'm just kidding. It's, um, is like, is just the, um, yeah, like to not, I think it goes back to what we were saying before, like to not fight the language that's already there, mm. um, to not shut it out because you've been told. And I, I always come back to like just this deep sadness about how many ways art and poetry is framed in many classrooms and like how important it is. Like, even though it feels like a lost cause to create classrooms where this isn't the case, like we have to always keep doing it. And, you know, like as many people as want to should is that I feel like we're taught in classes that our ideas and language don't matter because our job is to apprentice ourselves to the great language or thoughts or people that have come before us and to replicate it. And if we can't replicate it, we're wrong or we shouldn't even bother. And I feel like that's such a problem for so many reasons. But one of the things is that there's so much beauty in the language each of us have. And it's not just from us, you know, it's from what we're hearing around us. You know, it's what we heard growing up. It's what we hear, you know, every day. And that language like has so much power um, in how we combine it and construct it to have the emotion. And when we fight it, you know, because we think we're supposed to do something special or appear smart or whatever, you know, we've been told or you know, that um, that like that we lose, we, we fight that. And then it kind of comes back to bite us, you know, like we fight it and then it's like, oh, I'm going to get in. I'm just going to make your life a living hell while I do well, <laughs> that. But that's not to say like that it's like you shouldn't apprentice yourself to the things before you that really speak to you. But like that it's again, like just you're saying it's a conversation. You find those things, they find you, you should never fight them if they come to you that could be you know a poet from a thousand years ago that could be a poet today like you should let those things in but you shouldn't be forced by someone else that to believe that the language you just have within you you know is super important to what you're creating and I think when you work at it like symbiotically that that's what helps your poems I think it's also connected to what we're saying like to find your best like collaborator or your best you know fellow actor even if they even if that is ekphrastic work or like another person or you know just you're interacting with an artist that's you know passed away who whatever that is and it's multiple people like to make sure that you're um yeah that you have that to bounce off of you know to provide like the rigor around the construction of language that's like already there. But yeah, I think that's like when we think of just that anxiety of not having any language, it's, and again, it just makes me so sad. It's just because people are trained not to trust the, all the language they're just, they have, you know, that is just there. That's just flowing. It's just there. Right. And that's that stop making it harder on yourself. Like just speak in your, just speak your, your way, which is, it's, it's so hard. It's so hard to get out of your own way. And I, you know, I was listening to you talk to Kevin Young on the New Yorker podcast. And I, you know, I loved what you said about, you know, that sort of free associative state that's so it's, I, but it's so hard to get into that state. And 
that that self within a that or that you know maybe maybe we learned it long ago from somebody but it's also sort of something we all have to deal with is that 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 egoic voice that's saying no the way that you speak and the way that things are unfolding in your psyche's unique language isn't right and you should edit that out um yeah, that's just not, I can't get behind that. I know, I know there's probably some opinion that would say, yeah, that there's, that there, I, I'm, again, I'm not saying, you know, one should just be like the self and, you know, fuck everything else. Oh, excuse me. Can you curse on this? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, ma'am, this is a family <laughs> podcast. Okay. <laughs> well, they might have come to the wrong place. <laughs> starting at minute one. Oh, oh. like. Yeah, like you should, <laughs> but like, yeah, you shouldn't just, you know, obviously like not keep yourself from all other thoughts or all other conversation, but like, yeah, just, I just can't get behind anyone that's trying to tell someone that the language they have is not like valid as materials to work with. Like, because it's really important that every person you know, and then they can say, but I don't like that language, but their preference, like, you know, you have the language coming at you, you're listening to it, you know, you grew up with it, it's somehow in you, you read it 10 years ago, and now here it is happening. Like you, you should be empowered to say, I like that. And I don't like this. And I'm going to put this here and put that there. But those materials are so special to you and everyone should feel like they can use the materials they have which are right there and they shouldn't be told that they have to you know find other well, materials you're hitting on a really good point too which is that to be told they have to xxx because having a good teacher and mentor is essential here because you need that person to say because so much of the work is trying to to understand what your voice is and what isn't your voice because it and and there's a distinct we could even say shine to one's own voice that when you see it you realize when when, and you see it in other people's work you know you'll see it reading other people's work oh look how it busts open that's always the the thing in my mind opens up so much right here like it's an openness um and which is very beonian beyond the 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 open and Rilke always talks about openness too, but like open seeing, but the self, the voice, but having that teacher there to say, uh, to help guide you to to be able to develop your own voice, but that's where so much goes wrong because so many people are like trying to steer people to sound like their voice maybe. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think that's a thing like as a teacher, just to think about, cause it's, you know, like you could create everything out of your materials and you could say, I love this. This is beautiful. And as a teacher, like, it's okay to say, I don't really like that. And you just have, you could be like, you know, Dottie's full of shit or let me try to listen to it. Oh, sorry. sorry. Um, she can't hear. Okay. <laughs> Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, but, but like, I should never, it should never be that you can't use those materials. Mm -hmm. Like you, I might say, how about grab this thing out of this bucket or whatever. But yeah, I just think that's like, that's, it's just such a sad thing watching people feel like they can't draw from what they already 
what they already have, which is a lot. And I know we're talking about actors and performance performers, but that's the thing is like, I think actors or the active performance always uses, you know, what it has, you know, it's mm. always limited by, by whatever that self is. And it has to put itself in the new place, but it's not like it can be just a completely different person. It's not like an actor can turn themselves into like a rose. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, it's kind of like good poetry is like good acting in that way. Because you do, but, and back to exactly what you were saying before, the mask of the eye that it, but fully inhabiting that mask and finding the playfulness in it that's authentic, that, that, that passes from trying to be something you're not almost like in pretending you're not wearing a mask to uh, accepting the mask of one's own voice and using it to, it's almost like what masks bring the most out of me? What, yeah. what, what's serving me the most? What it, it, which feels like, what am I believing in? yes maybe that's it maybe it's maybe it's belief in your own because you do have to believe in what you're saying a little bit you have you have to believe that it's worth you have to believe you have to believe she's coming to the end of her podcast folks (laughs) i've got a few things to say (laughs) and by the way You've got to believe. Believe. Just be yourself. (laughs) Believe. Oh God. But I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think that that's like it's interesting because you know we're talking about masks and the persona. I think about this all the time. Like I'm terrified of masks. Like, and I mean it's interesting. Like yeah, masks with the pandemic and i'm i still wear like so many masks i I, I, like if you see me i'll wear like six masks like i'll just be oh like a like a like a pandemic mask yeah yeah but like i also i mean i'm so scared of like i but but you're scared of like uh like a like a halloween mask yeah i mean yeah i am on some fundamental level like how about that bizarre ending scene with like the fellatio like bear thing oh my god i loved your bear palm yeah yeah. that was like that was like i almost like laughed though because it was like (laughs) i think it is meant to be funny yeah i mean it's like scary and ridiculously funny it's it looks like they're having a good time i mean i don't i was like that's the least scary thing in this movie maybe (laughs) (laughs) well but i think also it's like they're so obviously from another time period like you said i think it's like that costume is like that's like an 1800s you know bear like it's not but then that's what makes it feel but yeah it's like there it is that moment is haunted like it's more fun you know for them to think that like somebody cared that this like interaction happened you know what i mean it's like there's a there's like a celebratory almost like celebratory nature to it Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. you know like the fact that they see that she sees them yeah and now we're seeing them and now it's like and now your poem's written about it yeah I I I want to clarify that yeah I'm scared of masks but definitely like a bear suit I am not scared of. Okay. In fact, 
I love, I love that. Yeah. I just, yeah. yeah. But, but there's something like what we're saying about like actors. Yeah. Cause it's like the, what the mask is that makes you work against it and it's not you, but it pulls out your best performance. Like, and I feel like that is kind of has to do with language. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, how, yeah, how you put the language on, which is like, is tied to what's a, the language you already have, kind of. It doesn't have to be exactly, obviously. It's like constructed in an artifice, but it's still like, it's still something that speaks to you enough that you can wear it. Like it's a, it's still like, it's still something that when you put it on, you have a sense of like yourself that you couldn't have been without it, but you still can like put it on, I guess is the thing. Like, well, when you think of the way that we acquire language or phrases and how it come and, and what there's this certain, and I can totally see it in your work. There's like a, a, a sweetness that we develop with language that, but it takes time to, to put it, to, to, to have it, to understand it in a way, even, I mean, some things like come, they seem to come from nowhere. Like they seem to like gift from the unconscious line, but somehow that line has been percolating within us. That is something that we have within us. And maybe it's too, it's too, it's really about getting to a state, getting into a, um, getting into a situation in which you can receive the line and give it to the poem or, and, and, and understand that that's, but, and getting more attuned with how to get into that state, being receptive and gathering language and ideas as you go. And then slowly it, they percolate and gel and we, and we own them more. Right. So it's like the mask to think that you can just pluck a mask off a tree that's not your own and put it on. Right. That would never work. You have to, it takes time and developing and it's, you know, part of it's this completely unknown phenomenon and part of it's something that's intentional, right? It's always unconscious and conscious work, but. And it's related to performance because it's like you've worn, you know, you've played that part yeah. enough that you put the mask on and you know how to. You know how to do it. it. Yeah. Like, you know how to be that thing that you're become yeah. with the mask, you know? And so it's like, yeah, you can't just take you can't take someone else's mat, you know, and, and I think of that too, like what you're saying, like the language flowing, that line that just happens and how, you know, sometimes people don't trust that. Cause I think if it hasn't, you know, tortured them, yeah. um, you know, that like, that doesn't count right. somehow like that line isn't as good as the line that like took them, you know, 25 hours to, totally. you know, make. but they're both, they're both just as good. Cause I do think about like the blood jet, you know, from Plath, it's like, <sighs> poetry as the blood jet it's like just because it's the blood jet doesn't mean that that blood isn't so amazing and precious yeah. and like just because you found the flow doesn't it, that's that could you know that's just as valid and beautiful and that flow is what's already inside you it's your it's your blood yeah. you know it's the language it's just there and we don't know exactly really where it comes from I mean we can tie it to yeah again like our experiences what we've read but some of it we're not it's coming from something we can't fully understand I love that and I and it make and the word flow too makes me think 
it is a learning how to flow with what is flow with ourselves and the world as we go. And, you know, when I, when I read your book, I think, wow, she is, it does feel like you're flowing in and out of your own life, your, your past, your present and, and somehow trauma. Right. And, somehow with an ease and openness towards the things that you are reading and watching and interacting with. And like all those things are speaking to each other and back and mirroring one another, echoing off of each other. Um, and you're editing it, right? It seems like it's all sort of just like happening, right? But you've edited like your skills, your subconscious skills as a poet have edited into this collection for you know, for, in order so that I can do this with it, you know, um, and you've done it so masterfully. I mean, you've got all, I love all your books, but it's just so cool to see each one, you know, talk about flowing flow one into the next and, and the conversations across the books too. And, um, but, but that you've honed this obsession of you, as you said, into this one and, the arc of your book mimics the arc of the movie too. Um, and then some. So maybe I think it would make sense to end on the ending poem, maybe. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay let's yeah. Oh, the ending poem. Yes. Okay. Okay. And this, okay. Yeah. This poem, what do you want to say about it? Well, no, it's just interesting. Cause this was, um, this was a poem I was having a hard time uh, figuring out where it should go. Oh, interesting. Because it is so like kind of unruly, and the lines are so everywhere. I mean, I mean, this is a spoiler alert. I'm giving it away, but um, <laughs> this was a Joshua suggestion to have it at the end, and now it's like I can't imagine it anywhere else. But I had it all sorts of places. Uh, um, going through a mountain. When the ghosts came after me, I just thought about the night sky, the way it twists and bends and still maintains its picture of a lion, a goat, a peacock, how we name our very sacred after the patterns it brings. Doesn't everyone feel there's an order to things? I asked the landscape. Instead, it answered chaos. How hard it is to accept that even the skyline doesn't feel anything like an order at all. Icky, lousy, horrible dread is what I feel every day of my life. So I wrote a book so scary it would mimic real life in all the worst ways. After all, I only remember the hospital bed where they both lay dreaming, both of my parents. It could have been 2045, it could have been 1408, but it was room 237 through and through. After all, it was a mountain I was going through where memory is not a literal thing, but a labyrinth that only coats when it is able. Where it is so cold outside in the screaming bedroom, where it is 4 a.m. always, and you go at it alone, forgetting for those moments who you are or why you even came here, wandering inside the lockdown hallway, popping a pill or two to forget about consciousness. 
Dear reader, I know you are tired too, so maybe you should take another drink and close down the receptors. Maybe if you're lucky, someone will give you one and tell you about your nice eyes. Maybe all you need is one good night. One good night of something, and when they rise in the daylight, tricking us all into mourning beyond a love of paternalism or the patriarchy or whatever it is these pink things mean, except our own self-hatred, because all we are are mirrors of ourselves. Or maybe you should just take another drink, Ben Ben, and oh, it sucks about your kids, Valentine. Have another little run in the forest, little blue eyes. Don't worry about the kids. I'm sure their father will take very good care of them when you're gone. I myself was just trying to go there, but instead I saw him walking in two different directions, and he was one person, my mirror multiplying us like a demon, my demon saying, stop now, but it's just you and me, Valentine, we should have loved them better, I know. And one, two times did I hear the screaming, you know you hear it too, there is no rising into a violet sleep and walking the day into the trees or taking a lemon cocktail out on the veranda in the suite of our youth with the orange trees, three trees, three lives, the earth was already dying by then. No, he was always there waiting so masterful, downstairs in the house that doesn't exist, down, down, way down, when the woman in the tower, she said, look out. She was going through a mountain too when you know she should have gone over it, but I was always vigilant. I was always waiting. So have another drink, Ben Ben. You'll get to me eventually. Don't worry, my dear. I'll wait. And when you finally get to the bottom of the glass, you'll find me that terrible terror of being. That's me. And when you finally get to me, oh, I will be so patient. Have another little toast of something, my children. Real things are lit by the moon. Be a moon, Valentine. Take a little toast of something. I'll just be sitting by the bed. No, really, I'll wait for you. I'll wait.